0: are here in the 11FS offices in London for episode 128 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. In this episode, we're going to give you some exclusive content that we selfishly kept all to ourselves, but since it's Christmas, uh, then it's time to give it out and you can blame our producers for waiting to the day after to get this to you. Um, All right, first up, we've got an incredible panel on the state of crypto and whether or not it's grown up. Uh, This was hosted by Sandra Rowe, alongside uh, Michael Rauks, who's crypto and blockchain lead uh, at the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, Asaf Mayer, who's the CEO of Solidus Labs, and Max Boonen, uh, who's from B2C2.
1: We're going to kick off, we're talking about growing up crypto and has crypto actually grown up. So let's think about a lot of us in the industry have been in the industry for about Bitcoin's now over 10 years old. Um, you've got thousands of crypto out there. Most of them are illiquid. Um, but you can invest in lots of different types of crypto, right? Uh, let's talk about the macro to start with. And I'm going to have Michelle and Asif and uh, Max uh, introduce themselves very briefly and give us a macro view of where do you think the state of the crypto markets are today from your perspective.
2: Hi, everyone. So, my name is Michel Rauchs. I'm a cryptocurrency researcher at the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, uh, which is based at the University of Cambridge. Um, do you want a macro view right now? Yes. Right. Go ahead. So, I think uh, it has definitely grown up since the last three, four years, um, but there's still quite a lot of problems and challenges uh, that need to be solved. So, I think I could talk about this for just like an hour. So, I'll just pass it over and we're going to talk about this later. Right, yeah.
3: Um, Hi, everyone. My name is Asaf. I am the CEO of Solvus Labs. We're an ML-powered infrastructure uh, that's providing market surveillance and transaction monitoring for exchanges, (laughs) broker-dealers, market makers, and hedge funds. Uh, We help them to detect, address, and investigate uh, manipulation. I guess from our perspective in macro level, I would say that um, a year and a half ago when we were discussing different manipulation in the market. People were not as uh, accepting in the fact that it's a problem. And today, it's no longer the issue. Today, people understand this is a big problem that needs to be addressed. Yep.
4: I'm Max Bone, and I run B2C2, one of the main market makers in the crypto space. And the first, and I believe still to this day, the only uh, crypto company to have secured a Mifid 730 license in Europe. Uh, I think that the the, the crypto market looks a little bit perhaps like the FX market 10 years ago, uh, with a lot of pieces of infrastructure that are missing, namely, um, specifically funding and credit. I think that's a big drawback on the space right now.
1: So let's take a, we're going to stay macro for a minute. So when we look at the US versus Asia and Europe, of course, we don't have a landscape that's actually even, or even coming close to, it's very fragmented. And when we think about what's going on in Asia versus the U.S., um, I think there tends to be a lot of eyes on the U.S. just because of the nature of the deep global markets, capital markets. Um, What's your take, and I'm going to start with Max as the market maker, on some of the challenges that you see, and is it fair to say that everyone should be focusing on the U.S. and what's coming out of the U.S.? How are you seeing it when you look at it from a geo geopolitical and geographic um, standpoint.
4: And and from a government standpoint?
1: Uh, So regulation, how governments are reacting to the fact that crypto markets are getting larger, and some are regulating, some are not regulating, there's a patchwork of things going on. So as a market maker, how do you see Asia versus the US, for example, or Europe? What's very
4: important to me is that there is more um, regulatory clarity that is attached to the spot crypto market. Because we've got a lot of you know, efforts on, on the derivative side, naturally because um, I think historically the FX market hasn't been regulated on the cash side, but the, you know, it was regulated sort of by proxy in terms of suitability, best execution, client assets and things like that. But the cash market itself wasn't regulated, whereas derivatives have always, always been regulated. And so I think that's what we see in the crypto market right now. So the CFTC has stepped in because there's a CME futures. And so we're working very well in, in reality. But the cash market, there isn't really any, in, any good piece of legislation that, are, that has come out specifically addressing that one. So as a market maker, you know, you're forced to operate in a, in, a, in a bit of a gray area, which is very uncomfortable. And what you find is that, for better or for worse, that tends to push some activities outside of the main jurisdictions and towards you know, more lax uh, countries, which is not, not always a good thing. Um, so it would be good to have, to have more clarity. My understanding, for better or for worse, is that in the US specifically, there has been, I would say, a lack of enforcement action against some you know, things that look pretty, you know, that don't look optically that great. And my understanding is that there might be at the highest level of government, a sort of push not to drive a new industry away in the context of sort of like America first and let's keep the jobs in America, which is very interesting because as an outsider, you look at crypto like, oh my God, was, why haven't they cracked down on some of that stuff yet?
1: Hmm. Interesting.
3: Uh, yeah, I have yeah. actually some, some comments from what Max said, which is it's interesting because you know, we're actually seeing a lot of our clients are concerned with the fact that different regulatory entities have already used existing frameworks in order to uh, enforce uh, market participants. And so it's true that there isn't specific crypto regulation, let's call it. Um, but nevertheless, they are going after different market participants that have done wrong. Maybe not everyone, I agree. Uh, but that's what we always say uh, to different clients is, regardless of what regulation is going to look like in the future, surveillance is something you can do today in order to make sure you're, you know, you're playing kosher. Uh, but yeah, that's...
2: So a recent study that we did on uh, the jurisdiction of differences when it comes to regulating cryptocurrencies actually found that um, so jurisdictions that have high levels of crypto asset activity domestically, 46-47% uh, of them actually uh, use what we call a retrofitted approach. Uh, which means that they take existing laws and try to fit cryptocurrencies somehow in there. Um, now, smaller countries that have low levels of activity try to push and to create what we call bespoke regulatory regimes or completely new laws that might be premature in some cases in order to be you know regulatory friendly, attract talent and business, um, and that creates additional problems as well. So the question of what is the right approach? And so one of the main challenges in that is really <clears throat> beyond geographical difference, I would say, is that there's an overlap of uh, regulatory parameters, which means that, so what we found is on average, there's at least three different regulatory bodies or agencies for each jurisdiction that have some, uh, you know, remit, regulatory remit over these activities. And that can go up to six different regulatory agencies, which then have contradictory statements, which doesn't really help businesses um, navigate that landscape. And that is for each jurisdiction, right? So cryptocurrencies are global by nature, so the user base is global as well. So that just creates an entire, you know, very complex landscape to navigate.
1: So I think the conclusion <laughs> is here that we've got a very complex landscape for anyone who's trying to do business and grow their business uh, in crypto. Um, so I, I'm gonna take a lot of the questions here as well and incorporate them into what we've already uh discussed that we would like to hit in terms of major points. So please keep the questions coming. Um, So one of the questions is what are the key factors preventing widespread adoption of cryptocurrencies? I will tweak that a little bit in conjunction with what we were discussing, which is people talk about the institutionalization or institutions coming into the crypto market as sort of the bellwether of whether this goes mainstream and legit. Um, I'd like to have the panel here opine on whether you do believe that institutions coming in and this becoming is really the um, bellwether for it becoming mainstream and legit.
4: Mm Uh, well, institutions are in the market. I think it, it's quite a misnomer. People tend to misunderstand what a financial institution is. Uh, they think that an institution is a BlackRock, and anything else that's not BlackRock is not an institution. But that, that's false. 80% of my OTC volume is done with regulated entities, and they're very large institutions. Some of them actually have higher trading volumes than, than even the big banks. Um, so you know, we have institutions in the space. It's not because pension funds are not in the space, or insurers are not in the space, that we don't have institutions. But we have to keep in mind that all financial institutions, at the end of the day, they cater to the needs of the the end user, of of the general population. Yes, pension funds might have huge pots of money, uh, and, and they're like big elephants in the room, but at the end of the day, it's millions upon millions of people that put their life savings into their pension fund, and that's that's what it is at the end of the day. So it's not like there's an existing pool of money that exists outside of reality that we could call institutional money, and then there's all the stupid retail traders. It's it's not the case at all. You know, all of the money that we have sloshing around the financial market at the end of the day is attached to you know and users and individuals, right? Um, however, or many layers you may have in between, right? And so institutions are in the space. Now, maybe it's a question of how can we get institutions that don't necessarily have a natural interest in crypto to get into the market, like insurers? I mean, they're in the business of getting premium and trying to grow them so that when there's a claim, they have enough money to to pay them. That, that's not a natural, you know, I don't see how there's a natural fit for crypto there. Maybe we need to think of something. But the fact that they don't, they're not in the crypto market right now, doesn't mean that it's not an institutional market because believe me, it is an institutional market. The CME contract is a success and you've got you know, the biggest market makers in the world, including B2C2, I guess, as a smaller outfit, trading that product and it's working. There's, there isn't a, a lot of big differences in, in reality in terms of the institutionalization of crypto and the, and the rest of the commercial markets.
3: It's, yeah, I agree. There's a subset of uh, institutional entities already in the market, but I think this, the superset is still not there necessarily. And, um, I, you know, not just myself, but Chairman Clayton of the SEC mentioned, uh, I think it was late November, that um, the two issues today um, in the market is manipulation alongside custody. And until they're not completely resolved, it's going to be a problem for a lot of um, institutions that are incredibly compliant to kind of enter the market.
2: I think the main question is actually, what do we mean by mainstream adoption, right? right. So if you take the initial right. view, um, everybody is supposed to be their own bank, run their node, be completely self-sovereign, Now I've got all these institutions coming in and actually what our studies show is that literally 90% even more of all the users, they just keep their coins at the custodial service provider, which is nothing else than a Bitcoin bank. Now is that the initial vision? I don't know. Is that what yeah. we're looking for for mainstream adoption? So I probably don't think everybody should run their node and be in control of all their coins. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think we need to first define what we actually mean by mainstream adoption.
1: Right. So this is the point that I think um, I've raised a few times and people have definitely pushed back on me, so feel free to push back, which is we had Bitcoin and the other cryptos that have now grown up, which were grassroots movements that were meant to actually uh, innovate and, uh, how shall I put it, um, you know, kind of break the current model of the way we do things, and actually what's happened is if you believe in crypto as an asset class, then it is now conforming to the existing infrastructure of today's markets, which means there's digital custodians coming into play. There are OTC brokers, there are market makers, and there is insurance coming in, and it's basically recreating all of the existing structures that we see today. Do you see that as a problem, or do you see that actually as the maturation of an industry that is now going to rival that of other assets?
4: Irrespective of my views, there is no alternative, because the reason that conventional markets look the way they look is not because there are some nefarious forces at play, it's because there are economic forces at play. That pushes towards separating clearing houses and exchange and custodians etc and for some people to provide their balance sheet to support trading activity so the, the fact that we're going to look like that more and more over the next couple of years that's just what it is and there's no way out now it is true that it's, kinda, it, it's a little bit sad that you know it's not very grassroots anymore however some companies in the space you know I think of binance are sort of trying to fight to keep it a little bit you know roots, um, so and, and I wish them well. But you know, there's only a very few uh, sort of battlegrounds where we can keep crypto the way it looked like in the early days compared to what conventional markets uh, look like. One thing we, we we might discuss is the fact that exchanges in the conventional space they make a lot of money selling data and not so much with finance, uh, you know, like with trading fees. Um, that's something that we haven't seen in crypto yet, and there's a possibility that actually it doesn't obtain because um, it's exchanges themselves make more money by keeping it a level playing field so that a lot of people can come and trade on their platform rather than you know, force people to pay $50,000 a month just for the data, which means that they, they, you know, there's a high bar to entry. So that's a possible battleground that is not going to tip in favor of the conventional ways of doing things.
1: So I'm going to take uh, one of the questions here and rephrase it. Um, and this is around uh, market manipulation and certain platforms out there in the world who seem to have more of a view of non-regulation or staying outside of regulation as opposed to those platforms out there that are trying to comply with the existing regulation. Um, we've got two worlds. They're gonna to start to co- collide. What are your views on this battlefield?
4: That, that's one I'm that's
3: um, Yeah, so, um, it also relates to the previous question, right? Um, what regulation looks like, and, and what this battlefield looks like. And I would say that it needs to be a hybrid, right? You need to cherry pick um, regulation from the existing market, from the traditional market, I would call it. Uh, there's good things there that that needs to stick in this new kind of emerging economy. Um, but then Michelle mentioned earlier that a lot of the existing frameworks today are not really fitting into the trading workflows today. And so that's what we're helping our clients with is understanding uh, what are the trading um, workflows, what are the new manipulation typologies, uh, sorry, manipulation typologies we're finding in the data. Um, and so in a way, there's this um, hybrid of understanding, okay, what makes sense from the traditional um, infrastructure regulation, and then what do we need to look out in this new emerging market and find that kind of bridge in between.
1: So I'm going to... Uh, alter my question slightly based on the question we just were trying to answer here. Um, So some people think that if they uh, don't take U.S. customers and they geo-block and they do various measures to keep Americans out, that somehow they'll stay outside of the U.S. regulatory um, oversight or reach. Um, What's your view on that? Is that a practical, um, Michelle? No. Is that a practical (laughs) um, way to run a business?
2: The thing is, they haven't got really much choice, right? But um, that's pretty much the only thing they can do. But is it sufficient? Um, Definitely not. I think everybody knows how to use a VPN, so.
1: Any other views?
4: And you can't touch the US dollar. Doesn't matter where you are. You touch the US dollar via one of the New York clearing banks, they can come after you.
3: I mean, but also apart from that, today regulation is already forming in different uh, Asian countries, um, you know, Malaysia, Hong Kong, Japan, so. Even if you're sent outside of the U.S., I mean, regardless of the fact that, yes, it doesn't really matter. But even in
2: other regions today, we're seeing uh, regulations being formed. Yeah. And let's not forget that we have stable coins now, so we can circumvent <laughs> yeah. that. So, well.
1: <laughs> yes, but here's the point I like to make. The minute you use U.S. dollar, this is the problem, is you're hitting up against now the currency of a country that is looking out um, to see who is touching their their currency. And I think that's going to be one of the problems with the crypto platforms out there that are outside the US Mm. that think that somehow they are um, exempt from uh, regulatory oversight in the US. But it remains to be seen. Um, Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about KYC AML. Because OFAC came out with some guidance, and so did um, FAFT, um, and I always say it wrong. But uh, what do you think about that? Because the implications of the guidance that came out uh, is pretty stark. It's individuals and any institution. So anyone want to opine on that?
4: During speaking, I believe in MLKYC. I think it's very important. Um, I find it disgusting how some, uh, some have, have managed to get away with, with money laundering uh, in the past couple of years. Um, that being said, it doesn't mean that there. I mean, there's multiple ways to do it. Some are right ways, some are wrong ways, and I'm not convinced that every single piece of regulatory effort is, you know, well-intentioned or, or well-informed. That's all I'll say.
3: Um, I'm basically thinking the same as Max. Uh, KOS and AML is obviously very important. Uh, we're actually using uh, different partners to understand AML uh, and then we connect that to the trading activity and understand a high-level overall scoring for that entity or for that account. So it really helps us to, to tell the story of a fraud journey, right? From inception until uh, the trading activity.
2: Yeah, I just want to add to that that contrary to what many people think, so our study has actually um, shown that um, essentially most cryptocurrency exchanges have started uh, KYC and AML programs right from inception. Majority now the question is whether the quality of these programs are, like ah. there's a, a huge yes. difference between these. Yes. Um, so yeah. That's
4: but a my, very my good point. Is, you look at the highest quality exchanges in crypto; they run higher quality KYC than the mega banks. That's my opinion. And more relevant one. Yeah. And more relevant, probably. Yeah.
1: Um, So let's talk about how the crypto markets are upping the game and actually pushing up against traditional finance, because actually what gets missed sometimes is the innovation that's actually happening in the crypto markets is influencing the way trading occurs in traditional markets. So do you guys have any thoughts on, you know, 365, 24-7 trading and implications of what that means for trading? And there's a lot of interesting things going on, and we kind of get left... Uh, under the radar because people don't think about operation risk and they don't think about necessarily the back end trading piece.
4: Well, I mean, when I was at Goldman Sachs, I, I liked to be able to go home at the end of the on Friday, you know. So I'm not sure I'm I'm, I'm so excited about 24/7 trading, although we have to do it in crypto. And I, actually, we find as market maker, we're more profitable over the weekends because just some people turn off their algos, and yeah. so if you're active, then you know it's less competitive. So that's interesting. Now, is that a good thing to have in uh, in conventional markets? I, I'm not convinced yet.
3: Yeah. Um, you know, again, from uh, from our point of view, I would say that it creates new um, um, openings for manipulation. The fact that it's 24-7 operational market, so the market structure is completely different. The fact that manipulation can occur uh, within a few minutes, and then the account can already disappear. So there needs to be real-time alerting versus T plus 1 or T plus 2 like traditional markets. So the fact that it is 24-7 operational market creates a new gap uh, that needs to be addressed when it comes to detecting manipulation.
2: I agree with trading. But I think uh, it's worth distinguishing between trading and payments, actually. So that's, I would say, where Bitcoin actually has had the most impact. But just showing or making people reconsider the way that we've been doing payments. And there is absolutely no reason why there shouldn't be 24-7 payments. And you can see that now as a result with the ECB, the Bank of England, uh, renewing or at least considering to renew their and upgrade their RTGS systems, giving access to those systems to non-banks as well. And I think that is pretty much one of the biggest impacts in terms of payments that cryptocurrencies have had so far. Yeah. So just so showing how things can be done.
4: It's a very interesting one, actually, because there's a big tension between, re, between growth settlement and net settlement systems. Mm. And the fact, if you open payments over the weekend, it sounds very, very vanilla and I mean, no big deal. But in reality, when you have payments, you also have credit. And so if you have credit systems or credit relationships that are sort of active over a weekend when the rest of the market is not really working... You know th- that's exposing yourself to potential, you know, unintended consequences or risks that you you've forgotten mm-hmm. about. You know, when uh, in, in af- you know during the 2008 crisis. People, even though they were supposed to settle gross, they were waiting until the last the last minutes of the day because they didn't want to have the entry exposures um, that, that can come with that. If you know that you have a payment now but you're expecting one later in the few in, in the day, but you're you're supposed to do it gross, then you might just like delay your payment. So it's got like weird unintended consequences which can have very adverse effects on liquidity. Just generally speaking, the trade-off between liquidity and, and growth settlement. Right. So opening that over the weekend. When, for instance, if you have to liquidate assets, but you can't because it's a weekend in order to face some sort of margin or anything like that, eh, you know, let's not forget that when there's payment, there's credit, and so if you have that over the weekend,
1: while well, not everyone is around? Could introduce some uh, introduce, uh, interesting risk profiles um, that we haven't even considered yet. Okay, so let's talk about fake volume um, that falls into also the category around manipulation and just dodgy behavior, pumping and dumping, all those terms that You know, in in regulated markets, should not be happening. So, uh, what are we going to do about that? How do we clean this up?
3: Right. Um, (laughs) So, I think that also the bigger question here is what true market integrity looks like
2: Mm
3: -hmm. um, in this market. And you know, I think that some companies that, if a year ago didn't really make any effort to uh, become compliant, you can see that today they are, you know, appointing compliance officers. They're Putting in place some surveillance uh, program, but it's not necessarily enough. Uh, so then it begs the question: What does market integrity looks like? And we're working, you know, with digital, global digital finance, and we bring the right people around the table to understand what this, um, what are some actionable items market participants can do, as well as investor looked for in these different exchanges, for example, uh, to understand what market integrity is supposed to be.
1: So let, let's talk about standards, then, since you've mentioned GDS, yeah. um, When we look at bringing together standards, we've got a body, the Global Digital Finance Group, who are literally creating, with the industry, uh, codes of conduct, um, standards. How do you see it unfolding? Do we need mm-hmm. to get the big guys and the little guys together? How should it work?
3: Yeah, I think that it's important to have a, a variety of opinions uh, around the table. Folks that are in the trenches every day, understanding what is manipulation, uh, what are the new type of manipulation we're seeing today, uh, what has we seen in traditional markets. As I mentioned earlier, it needs to be—it's uh, not a one-person uh, solution. It needs to be a few people around um, understanding what are, is the right path towards success. Um, yeah, Michelle, any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I think we've already seen quite, quite a few initiatives in terms of self-policing, but also mm-hmm. self-regulation. And the best example, I would say, is the Japanese Virtual Currency Exchange Association, which is actually now a self-regulatory body appointed by the FSA, and they have the power to actually punish their own members. Um, and so that's probably one extreme, but then you've got these other um, initiatives, like I think it's called the Blockchain Transparency Institute, uh, that try to filter out all that fake volume. Um, so, so there's lots of initiatives. Now, whether that's going to be enough and even then, you know, those different
3: research yeah. today bring out another research we've seen. They rely on API data that is not at all complete, uh, mm-hmm. and so that begs the question: What is real market integrity, uh, and what is the type of data these exchanges needs to kind of release? And you know, it's the biggest problem here is daylight. There isn't enough of it, and we always say, you know, that um, yeah, daylight is the best disinfectant, and we're trying to kind of push that as much as we can.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's it. in my view uh problem of market manipulation. There to be honest, mostly limited to Asia. Uh, I think you look at the main U.S. exchanges and also the ones that are regulated in Europe, it's not, it's not a problem. But, I mean, the fact that, you know, Asia is the biggest market for crypto at the moment, then obviously that, that still remains a problem. I,
3: I, I have to disagree. We're seeing manipulation also in other um, geographical locations apart from Asia. And, and it's, still, it's still a problem, not to the same extent, obviously. And, and some of the U.S.-based entities are definitely making efforts to, to stop it. Um, but it's there's enough of it uh, to go around.
4: Can we say that the intention is there at least? Mm-hmm.
3: Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: Okay, uh, so we've got regimes all over the world who are trying to take existing laws and jam crypto into several <laughs> boxes or one box. Um, do you think we need special regulation for crypto or do you think we can, um, sorry, do you think legislators and regulators will just use the existing frameworks and then We'll have to identify the gaps.
3: I mean, you know, my forecast is that there would be something that is standalone for crypto eventually, and I think that regulators, a lot of folks like to say that they're not involved, they're not trying to make an effort. I actually think they're making a lot of effort to to hear the industry, to meet with market participants, to understand what are the challenges and how to resolve them. Uh, and I think that no, no regulation is going to come full formed right away. It's going to be iterative, and so in the meanwhile, we have to um, show good faith and do what we can. Uh, in light of, I guess, traditional frameworks. But it's gonna be iterative. I think if you
2: actually look at the activities themselves uh, that are you know, conducted by third parties or intermediaries, actually the vast majority of them closely resemble traditional activities that we find in financial markets as well. And then the question becomes, just because you use a different type of assets, as long as that property of the asset doesn't really change fundamentally the way the intermediaries handle it, you really need to regulate it completely differently. And then, taking that approach as well, then we need to look at, okay, so what are the unique characteristics of these assets? Like for example, custody where we have multi-sig and different setups that can be done, or mining something that didn't really exist before, yeah. and then see, well, if there's no fitting regime for that, then we might actually consider creating a regime for those activities, but not necessarily something that just mixes everything together when we already have, you know, two, 300 years of regulation about certain activities like trading um, that work pretty well.
4: Um, I think so too. In a way, I think that the existing piece of regulation, uh, you know, the regulatory framework that we have is is sufficient probably, and there isn't anything really special about crypto that would require something new. But there is a gap, there's a tension in the market, which is that because a lot of activities historically haven't been regulated, like the cash market, um, we find that if you're a a stand-up crypto company and you want to show that you have very good internal processes and you're like on the up and up, then you'd like to get a license, you'd, get, you'd like to get a stamp of approval, but if there's no license, there's no stamp of approval to get, and you find that the exchanges are regulated like by proxy there as payments institutions. but exchanges are not payments institutions. but Coinbase, BitSAM, et cetera, they all have payments license. Um, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I think the problem, is, it's a failure actually of the, of the private market. It's a failure of, 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 of auditors, it's a failure of, of the market surveillance firms to actually be able to step up and say, okay, we've audited that crypto company, it's sound, it, they're good, the money's there. We found, with Tether in particular, they have, they have absolutely failed there. And the problem is that then people look up to the next sort of source of credibility. They look at regulators, but the regulators are like, there's nothing I have to offer to you. And so there's that big gap in the market, which actually I think is a private market failure. And we've seen with, the, with Tether that the New York Department of Financial... Uh, sorry, the New York AG sort of stepped in. And as a government said, no, actually the money's there. There's other problems, but the money's there. Something that private firms like auditors haven't been able to demonstrate.
1: Okay, so I don't want to depress people. I want to end with an optimistic note. So we've, in our last minute, lightning round, tell me what you are most excited about in 2019 going to 2020. We'll start with Max and work this way.
4: Very idiosyncratic, but I think that things are starting to look up up in Japan. After the Coincheck hack, it was very, very weird, but now it's starting again, and Japan used to be at the very forefront of crypto adoption, and it is starting again.
3: I mean, I'm excited about a lot of things, but I guess the most uh, exciting thing that's been happening recently is the traction around understanding that um, manipulation is a big hurdle that needs to be addressed, um, and the new technologies we're finding in the market that will eventually be able to fill that gap of
2: uncertainty. I'm most excited about really the technical developments that happen at the base layers of the chains themselves. So there's been a lot of activity going on. And point. And that is, I think, what's really most exciting. Yeah.
1: Um, and I'm going to end with, I think we've now come to a place where the markets have flushed out a lot of the nonsense. There's mm-hmm. still nonsense in the market, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but uh, we're beginning to see the maturation of an industry that has many more years to run Um, But we're finally seeing, I think, some sobriety and real building and focus. So for those of you who are in the industry, let's keep building. And for those of you who are interested in getting involved, get involved. Thank you very much. Thank you to our panelists.
0: Thank you so much to Sandra. Uh, She's just an awesome host. And uh, if that wasn't enough, we thought we'd talk to Asaf and Max just a little bit more about their companies respectively and what they're actually doing in the industry uh, as market makers and uh, elsewhere in the industry. But before that, here's my uh, my regular old attempt at plugging R3. Uh, Of course, uh, this episode is brought to you by the fine, fine folks at R3. And developed by R3, Corda is known for its enterprise-grade privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability. And because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries like financial services, it can be used by firms of any type, size, or industry. With Corda, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain. A free trial of Corda Enterprise is now available at r3.com head on over to check it out and as always a massive shout out to friend of the show Todd McDonald and let's hear from Asaf from Solidus right now. All right welcome back to Blockchain Insider I'm Simon Taylor and it's my pleasure to be joined by Asaf Mir. Hi Simon. How are you? You are the CEO of Solidus Labs. Indeed. (laughs) Uh, How is life at Solidus Labs? How are you?
3: I'm um, doing well. Uh, you know, we are working with different uh, market participants, exchanges, broker dealers, market makers, hedge funds, in order to
0: bring some uh, order into the mess of digital assets. Uh, well, I was going to ask you that. Um, tell me the story that leads to you creating Solidus Labs. Like, what's the genesis of, we should go build this company? Right.
3: Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So, um, the, most, of the, most of the team of Solidus has deep roots in Wall Street. Uh, We all work in big banks and we knew that uh, this industry has a lot of potential, but with its potential, we realized a big gap when it comes to compliance. Now compliance is a huge umbrella term, Uh, you know, it's KYC, AML, transaction monitoring uh, and market surveillance. What we haven't seen companies are doing are offering products that are crypto native for market surveillance and transaction monitoring uh, for companies that are exposing their clients to the risk of digital mm. assets. So that's where we really enter the space, realizing that this uh, ecosystem really needs this in order to grow. I believe it was Chairman Clayton of the SEC that mentioned that um, without market surveillance and custody, by the way, the industry can't really move forward and adopt institutional uh, investors.
0: Yeah, and I guess market surveillance is something that in the institutional world is well understood, but like Correct. we've definitely seen Uh, accusations of market manipulation and concerns coming from the regulators that they fear that there's market manipulation happening and that the industry is not being effective in in managing market manipulation so explain to me what market manipulation might be Uh, and then explain to me about how you might go about mitigating that risk so there's different flavors of market manipulation uh, and
3: for each of our clients we're helping them differently for an exchange, we're monitoring everything from spoofing, layering, pumping dumps. Uh, And the idea is that, uh, for example, if you wanna, the the easy case is when someone is trying to artificially inflate the price of an asset Mm -hmm. by buying and selling uh, on the same account, for example. Yes. Um, And traditionally speaking, legacy systems that you try to take them and basically impose them on this type of trading, uh, doesn't really work as as effectively, uh, which is why uh, um, a system that is tailored for digital assets, that's also not just rule-based, but using machine learning techniques in order to understand other data anomalies, really is able to reduce the false positives that we're seeing with our, with our clients.
0: And false positives suck because if I'm yes. uh, if I'm just doing legitimate trading activity and I get held up for being like, hey, you look like you're doing something illegitimate, right. that's pretty
3: annoying. It's pretty annoying. You have to have a team of you know analysts going through that. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of the also legacy systems aren't able to um, accurately assign a probability score to different alerts. Mm-hmm. So you basically have to go through everything, understand what's It's
0: either what's an alert left. or it's not. It's exactly. not like 30% confidence that there's Some, a, exactly.
3: Yeah. Some yes, some not, but it's uh, it's on the vast majority of things, uh, probability score and using uh, these type of techniques of ML mm-hmm. is not quite there
0: yet. Exciting stuff. So. Um, Talk to me a little bit more about how the ML actually works for you. So you, what what are you doing? What what, uh, what type of ML are you using, and yep. uh, and what are you looking for? Can you give me an example for yeah. spoofing or layering or something?
3: Absolutely. So we're using um, a few different techniques. Uh, we're using unsupervised uh, algorithms as well as supervised algorithms. Uh, what we're doing is basically we're uh, uniquely slicing trading sessions into unique segments. Mm-hmm. And those segments are then being compared to a trained label data set uh-huh. of known manipulation schemes that were either adjudicated or draw different regulatory attention from our pilot customers. Then we're able to basically mathematically compare those segments uh-huh. into that label data set and assign a score to each one of those segments and, and tell into our clients whether or not um, manipulation has taken place. Now, I always say to our clients, you know, we are like dogs sniffing bombs, right? We're able to say whether or not this looks and smells like it, but then they need to take their human expertise and truly yeah. um, dig into it.
0: I think that's always the good mix, right? The human side is always going to be there. Um, I guess, what, how important is it that uh, you guys are, are doing this stuff? Because I guess crypto has a bit of a bad name. Yep. I think it's got a bit of a reputation issue. Absolutely. What role do you see yourselves playing and do you see... Uh, And who are your clients, and and are they looking for you to stop helping with that?
3: Right. Um, I couldn't agree more with you, Simon. I think that's partially why we wanted to enter this space. Uh, We are literally bridging the world of Wall Street and traditional finance Mm -hmm. with this newer, uh, evolving economy. We believe that there's a lot of room for growth, uh, as long as mature, grounded companies are coming into the the mix Mm -hmm. and trying to understand how this all needs to work. Uh, Trading workflows are completely, um, have a lot of gaps today that we're trying to kind of fill in. So it's very much needed, it's very much needed uh, to bridge between the regulators and these different companies that are working in this space. And our clients, as I mentioned earlier, they're either companies that are today very crypto-specific, so it could be a crypto exchange or a crypto broker-dealer interested to kind of enter the space, or uh, traditional banks that are actually interested in possibly opening a desk for crypto. And are not sure how to do that, but before they even go about doing that, they may they have to make sure they have the regulatory framework in place to do so.
0: Completely. So, how are you seeing the a regulators and b traditional banks react to this space and the level of interest?
3: So, regulators, I have to say, have been amazing. As far as I'm concerned, I know that a lot of people like to say they are not providing us with a framework to work here. They're they're doing little work, but. Uh, They have been doing what they can so far, if if you ask me, to really um, be proactive. They're providing to us a lot of accessibility to them, uh, Mm -hmm. to provide to them, you know, demo and and our design and our thoughts, and they're always very, very um, kind of susceptible for that. So they've been great, if you ask me. Um, And a lot of people, I think, are upset with them because they're thinking, we need regulation, And the thing is, it's never going to come in full form out of the sky just like that, right? It's going to be iterative. Hmm. And meanwhile, what we're always saying to our clients is that no matter what regulation is going to look like in the future, trade surveillance and transaction monitoring is something you can do today, regardless of what it's going to look like.
0: Yeah. It's like, what's the downside to doing trade surveillance and transaction monitoring? Like, what is the actual downside? Because it's going to to increase your credibility with your customers. It's Mm -hmm. going to increase your credibility with the regulators. It's going to increase the net. Um, credibility of the entire industry. Correct. And I think if you're seen as a market that can't um, actively manage and and demonstrate to regulators that you can manage uh, market manipulation, surely a conversation makes sense.
3: I I couldn't agree more. And I think that a lot of our clients are also kind of, you know, forward-looking. They're thinking about how, if and when ETF is going to get approved, whether or not they could even, you know, trade it and other traditional instruments that are, they're interested to onboard into this
0: kind of blockchain-based asset trading. So what's exciting you right now um, as you get up in the morning? What, what do you what, right. what do you see in the industry that's like, yes?
3: So, I mean, I'm, you know, when it comes to, to Solidus, at least, you know, part of my job that is the most exciting, I think yeah. it's something I refer to as the unknown unknowns. It's um, the, the new typologies we're discovering in our clients' data of manipulation. And I know it may sound geeky, but that's truly what always gets me more excited is to find new ways to manipulate. So when customers are... Uh, reaching out to us saying, hey, can you uh, figure out if there's front running here? And then we're telling them, well, sure, we can, you know, surveil that, but also you should take a look into that type of data anomalies we're re- realizing here. And that's something that is really, excites me about my work is to re- see those new topologies emerging. Uh, yeah.
0: And, and I guess once you're able to look at the data the way you are, it's not just... Uh, yeah, you know, preventing market manipulation and risk stuff. You can start to look at that data in different ways and, and see opportunities. So Yes,
3: exactly. And the more complex the trading workflows and the systems, uh, the more opportunities uh, for to manipulate. And malicious sectors are becoming extremely sophisticated. And so it's really interesting to see, you know, how they're going about different things. And I think what you mentioned earlier is, is really on point. Um, the way we're thinking about this whole thing is not from one perspective of market surveillance, we are also doing for our clients transaction monitoring, and are mm-hmm. also able to digest other regulatory uh, feeds if they have like AML or KYC or oh, any other things. On and it. whatever else. Yeah. Exactly. In order to really, you have to, um, you know, look at this from a unified point of view to understand the. I, I can call it like the fraud journey, right? from all the way of inception uh, of the fraud until it's uh, been uh, resolved on the entity level.
0: So if I'm at an exchange or I'm somewhere in crypto or even I'm in the buy side and I'm curious about opening a desk, how do I get in touch with uh, Solidus Labs?
3: So, you know, first of all, our website, we're very uh, active to any requests coming from our website, Mm soliduslabs.com. And we're very active on Twitter as well, uh, Solidus uh, Labs as well. So uh, yeah, happy to get in touch there.
0: Looking forward yeah. to it. All right. Thank you very much for being on Blockchain thank Insider. Thank you, Simon. Thank you. Great stuff from Asaf. Thank you so much uh, for being involved. And, and Solidus are really, really doing a whole bunch of interesting things. Um, but we've got to move on. And let's get to Max Boonen from B2C2. Welcome back to Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor. And it's my pleasure to be joined by Max Boonen, who is founder of B2C2. Max, how are you doing?
4: Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, All right, tell us a bit more about B2C2. What do you do um, and what's the the story of B2C2?
4: Yes, Um, B2C2 is a market maker. That means that we essentially do two things that are related. Uh, One, we continuously quote prices on exchanges, the likes of Bitstamp and the CME. In the hope that we capture some spread that people trade against us because our quotes are competitive, mm-hmm. uh, but not so competitive as to lose money on market moves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that sort of continuous two way quoting mm-hmm. on exchanges. And the other side of, of it is, uh, is an electronic OTC market making endeavor, which is more or less the same thing, mm-hmm. except that instead of quoting prices on an exchange in a sort of anonymous fashion, um, larger players, that some would call, I think, for the wrong reasons, uh, institutions mm-hmm. uh, connect to us directly as an alternative to trading on an exchange. And instead of you know trading on an all-to-all basis, they just see our prices, stream to them twenty-four-seven. And it's and more execute peer-to-peer. On it's it's, um, it's them against us yes. directly. Yes. Yes.
0: Uh, and I think that's an uh, interesting comment about uh, some would incorrectly label institutions. I'll, I'll come back to that point. Um, but sort of the. Um, The role of a market maker in something like crypto, there's there's, uh, obviously still quite a lot of volatility in crypto assets uh, against a market where uh, your kind of uh, volatility has more or less disappeared. You know, trading Mm -hmm. against the VIX has been (laughs) one of the standard uh, trades for for at least 20 years. So in a market with low volatility, uh, has crypto become one of the areas where you can at least find that and find alpha?
4: So absolutely. I find that, uh, for better or for worse, there's um, a lot of people that think that they have an edge, that they have alpha. And the thing is that if you think you have an edge, if you want to maximize your returns, you need to find the assets that are the most volatile with respect to the sort of risk that you're taking. And so for a long time, that, that was foreign exchange. And, mm-hmm. uh, but you know that, that's also become less volatile or more difficult to make money. Or the regulators, even in some cases, have imposed caps on leverage. Um, and then when that's the case, then you look for the next sort of more volatile assets mm-hmm. right after that one. And I think that's part of the narrative. People don't really talk about that because maybe it's not as sexy as other narratives, but it's an important, I think, um, element to why there's so much activity going on in the crypto markets.
0: It, it, it's daft as it sounds, but I think it's really obvious why people are interested in crypto in that if you know what you're doing, there's money to be made. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a volatile asset class, which isn't always a bad thing. So how did you get into it? Was it the volatility that attracted you? Was it something else?
4: It was actually much simpler than that. Uh In 2015, I was an interest rate swaps trader at Goldman Sachs, Mm -hmm. um, and the fixed income market wasn't doing so hot Mm -hmm. at all, Mm -hmm. and I could get a sense the bonuses were not going to be great. (laughs) And for the past sort of two years, I'd been trading crypto sort of on on my own account, um, also on a sort of... You know, automated fashion with bots and things, um, and I thought all oh, done that this thing as legs, and and I'm I'm not particularly I'm not like a Bitcoin evangelist or something, but I thought you know there's a real market here, and maybe I want to be one of the first one to to jump in, which is what we did. Uh, we've been acting the market since 2015, and we've seen you know ups and downs, mm-hmm. which have been I guess you know, uh, it's been
0: a good learning experience. Yeah. It really, really has uh, been an interesting ride over that time and period. So uh, what, what have been your learnings and experiences over that sort of time horizon from 2015 to now? You know, what do you wish you knew then that you know now?
4: Um, well, in the crypto market specifically, mm-hmm. um, I think that one thing that's been a disappointment, I think, for a lot of companies in the space is the impact of regulation on the standing of the crypto market. A lot of people thought that it's only a matter of regulators, you know, stepping in and, and, you know, crypto players getting the licenses and things like that, and then the market's gonna have a good reputation. It's actually not the case, because you find find that there's still, it's still something that's playing out, that a lot of people have very big licenses, very expensive licenses. Yet other parts of the financial system, they don't want to work with them. You know, I'm thinking yeah. of banks.
0: You've still got a credibility issue, even if you're yes. regulated.
4: Yes, yes. And and also, I think that some of the reg- the, the pieces of regulation that have that have come out are not really necessarily fit for purpose. Um, weirdly, I think that the, the existing regulatory framework that we have is actually fit for purpose. I'm thinking of MiFID in, in, mm. in Europe. I think it's just you know crypto firms. Are not necessarily different, except you know, you've got that you know, blockchain transfers and things like that, but really they're just financial services. Right?
0: There's some quirks, right, around key management and custody that, that I think are important. Um, but outside of managing those risks, materially a lot of the risks around market manipulation, around financial crime, around all of that kind of stuff look quite similar to they would in financial markets.
4: Yes, it's MLKYC, it's suitability, mm-hmm. something that we don't talk a lot about, in, you know, we don't point. talk about that in crypto, um, and, uh, and also transparency.
0: Suitability is a really good one. So what are your thoughts on uh, kind of the landscape of different actors in the crypto market? Are they doing themselves favors or are they doing themselves a disservice at the moment? Because there's, there's definitely a risk of, I think, reg arb, um, where you've got uh, you know, kind of a race to the bottom of the uh, jurisdictions of like the most permissive. Is that harming, you know, sort of the industry's uh, focus with banks and with regulators or, you know, is there a, a movement towards more credibility that you're seeing in the industry as well? Um, and, and how can we, how can we move it in that direction?
4: So that, uh, that sort of race to the bottom is always a risk, I think, in all markets. <laughs> the, it's a di- difficult dial to, to adjust. My, my feeling is that the re- crypto-specific regulation is, is very onerous when it exists. And when it doesn't exist it doesn't seem to give uh, the businesses that go after uh, licenses necessarily the the boost in terms of credibility that they ought to give them Mm -hmm. Um, when you can demonstrate that your operating principles are sound enough that you know the regulators think that uh, deem you uh, worthy Um, so i think that there's a risk that what we see is is also something that's played out in other markets which is that larger players and i'm thinking about the incumbents you know the banks and others Actually, because they're already in the regulatory perimeter, step in and take over. Mm-hmm. Not because their um, you know their their systems and, and 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 operations are better, but simply because they're already there, right? And they have the credibility and they have the connections um, to to make it work. Whereas you know you can have the the most the the. the the most appropriately managed and, um, and, and safe startup ever, if they don't get a bank account, or you know, if, uh, if, if other players don't want to work with them because they have too small a balance sheet or something like that, it's not going to work out. And I think that there's a risk of that because one thing we've seen in the 2017 bubble is that, and I'm not a bank basher, I mean, I used to work at Goldman Sachs, I right. would be very ironic, um, is that it's not a question of Reputation, or or AML risk, or anything like that for the big banks. It's only about the money. If there's enough money to be made, they will jump in, and that's exactly what we saw at the peak of the bubble. They were scrambling to get into the crypto market yeah. after having said for years, "Oh, this is dodgy, this is dodgy." So, if you know we're in a maybe at the beginning of a new bull market, we might see the same thing again.
0: I, I don't want to sort of uh, pick you up on that. Do you think that crypto is? You know, what's your personal thesis? Is crypto this thing that's this? nice weird thing in the corner and then something comes along and replaces it that looks like more like traditional assets? I'm talking here about security tokens and asset-backed tokens and, and this sort of thing. Or do you suspect that things like crypto and, and, and uh, you know, natively digital assets will, will take off and become a thing in their own right? Or both?
4: Maybe? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a crypto evangelist, but I do think that the, the, you know, crypto stands on, on its own merits. Um, and when I look at STOs and things like that, I'm actually quite sceptical, I'm very sceptical of blockchain um, yeah. and I'm sceptical of STOs at least, you know, in the short term, but maybe it's a long term play. The reason for that is that it, will, it is not possible to circumvent the sort of paper-based legacy authorization processes for issuing assets you know it's just you have to follow both tracks mm-hmm. the blockchain based one and also just going to the regulator and, and filing the right paperwork yeah. so you have to it's double the expense right but it is possible that in let's say five years time the regulators consider that okay if you're following the blockchain based track it's you know the the, the outcomes in terms of following that track from a a governance standpoint are so good that we deem you as having followed the legacy track. But that's that's a long-term play, that's a long-term play.
0: It's going to be a a lot to see. So uh, as you gaze into the crystal ball, what do you think the next two, three years for crypto starts to look like?
4: I think it's going to look more like conventional markets. Uh, there are a lot of functions that are important in commercial markets that don't exist in crypto. People were all about custody uh, a year and a half ago. And I thought, well, hold on a second, it's not just about custody. They thought that the big institutions need custody to come in because they need to protect the coins. It's not just that. There's a lot of other important things such as, well, funding and credit, you know, it's yeah. very important. If you... If it's the
0: whole infrastructure and custody yes. is one piece of that.
4: I come from a so foreign exchange background as well, TradeFX fixed as before. Um, one thing that's very important is that if you're a hedge fund and you buy 100 million of dollar yen you don't actually put down 100 million dollars. Mm-hmm. No, the bank or your prime broker lends that money to you to support the position. That's not something that exists in crypto at the moment. I think that's really keeping a, a lid on what we can achieve in terms of volumes and turnovers.
0: But isn't it interesting, though, that uh, banks who are, you know, effective prime brokers and uh, Montboutique Boutique prime brokers haven't really done that yet? Um, do you have a reason for why you think that is?
4: Well, some tried, actually. Uh, Barclays, I think, had an interesting approach to the market because they were not looking at just, hey, can we trade Bitcoin? But they were looking at the value chain, yeah. you know, in terms of, yeah, custody, repo, you know, FX swaps and things like that. Could, could they insure themselves, you know, in one, at one of those layers? And simply, they started doing that at the top of the bubble, right? So, you know, they, they ended up, as far as I know, ditching that effort for the time being, but they had that other approach that I think was quite interesting.
0: I, I think it's going to be interesting to watch the buy side um, look to usurp prime brokers because the buy side's margins are being compressed. So that's a really interesting. And they are facing increasing regulation in their own right. Uh, and they, I think they're looking at their prime brokers and looking at where's the value coming from.
4: Uh, Margin compression, absolutely. And you find that in my view, that's a big driver behind um, crypto adoption is that you look at speculative retail FX uh, players, right? In FX, it's become more and more difficult to make money. Um, And now they're looking at crypto. That's something that can actually get new traders in the door that were not trading with them before. Because, you know, one reason that Coinbase is so valuable potentially is that it managed to get 20 million people that were not trading before to trade. That's valuable. And so that was one reason B2C2 went to Japan. Was the first company to go into Japan in a, in a big way in terms of uh, what we do, because we knew from our FX days that, let's say, 30% of the flows in FX can be in a way ascribed to retail punting in Japan. Wow. You know, and so if you know that about the the real the conventional market, there's then it's clear that the crypto market is going to be a big thing in Japan, if only because the, 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 the incumbents, you know, the, the, the big retail brokers, have such an incentive to go and find, and find new sources of revenue when you consider that the peak for FX trading was around like 2014-15.
0: Max, super interesting conversation. Thank you for being on Blockchain Insider, sir. Thank you very much, Simon. I really enjoyed that chat with Max. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. That wraps up. Another show. Thank you for listening. If you like this one a little bit extra, why not give us a review? It just takes 10 seconds and you can do it right there on your phone. Just give us a review. Reminder, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the very fabric of financial services, delivering new propositions and new products to market across the globe. Thank you so much for listening. We will, of course, have more Blockchain Insider next week where we look at our top 10 blockchain and crypto predictions for 2020 hope you all had a great christmas and have a happy new year